Welcome to episode number 10 of The Thermal. I'm your host, Harry Tenkate. In this episode, an incredible 1,730-kilometer record-breaking flight in New Zealand. Pilot Terry Delore puts us in the cockpit for the flight of a lifetime. Denmark is a small nation with a small but intense group of glider pilots. Morten Benick tells us how he exploits every possible island-hopping cross-country opportunity. On Gliding Club Confidential, we go to Scotland. Pilot with a paintbrush paints a loving portrait of her club, the D-Side Gliding Club. Are you prepared if your flight ends in an unexpected way? Do you carry a personal location device? Pilot, tech reviewer and podcaster Phil Lightstone talks us through the latest gadgets. And some glider pilots prefer high toes and rapid descents over strong thermals and long cross-country flights. We talk to aerobatic competitor Laura Radigan about the topsy-turvy world of glider aerobatics. That's all on episode number 10 of The Thermal. Terry Delore is a world record-holding elite glider pilot from New Zealand. His flights are epic, and he's just broken another world record flying his ASW-27B. On February 3, 2020, Terry completed a flight that started at Omarama in New Zealand's South Island, crossed over the Cook Strait and into the North Island before turning around for home. By the time he was done, Terry had completed a 1,730-kilometer flight, setting a new free out-and-return world record for 15-meter gliders. Terry is also claiming the declared out-and-return record of 1,730 kilometers and a 1,500-kilometer out-and-return speed record of 139.69 kilometers per hour. However, these last two records are in doubt due to a starting gate error after a recent IGC rule change. All three records are still pending official verification. I reached Terry at his home in Christchurch, New Zealand. Hello, Terry, and congratulations on another world record. Thank you very much. I'm thrilled to have achieved that flight. Now, you've broken all sorts of world records, yet you describe this particular flight as the hardest and most challenging and satisfying flight of your life. Why is that? Uh, it's because on the day there was nothing left. There was You could not have gone one kilometre further north and you definitely couldn't have gone one kilometre further south. We had a stalled front right on the start line. I had to uh, fly into the start on instruments inside the cloud in rain where the front was uh, for the last sort of couple of kilometres. I managed to get the start uh, in the quadrant uh, and get out and it was just Look back five minutes later, it was absolutely black and hosing down with rain. So really good to get in and out of that point. The front stayed there all day long. It was a stalled front. And so I did the trek, the uh, 850 kilometre or whatever it is, um, 900 kilometre trek to the north, um, to the northern turn point, and ran out of wind. But because we had uh, the smoke from the Australian bushfires 2,000 kilometres to the west of us, there was a, a layer of smoke at about 14, 15,000 feet, just in sort of in, a, in the inversion level or on just one particular level. Hmm. And apart from a featureless blue sky that I was flying into, the, the smoke marked where the wave was. Huh, just cool. Just 
I just want to pick up on something you said earlier. So in New Zealand, you can legally fly in cloud. Yep, it certainly is, yep. And, and do you have to get any special training for that? Uh, yes, I have, yeah. I, uh, I did uh, years of training myself, uh, followed by uh, some big frights, and then I've got some formal training, and wish I'd done that years ago. <laughs> wouldn't, right. have, wouldn't look so old right now. Uh, but I got uh, proper training by uh, by a friend, ex Air Force, and uh, he put me through the ropes, and um, so it made life a lot easier. Uh, but I don't do it often. Uh, I do enough of it just to remain current. Right. Because for wave flying, I think it's a necessity. Now, tell me how you prepared for this flight. Well, I've been trying to do this flight for over well over a decade, and I've had. Um, Many tries and uh, many non-successes, failures if you want to call them that. I've landed up in the North Island, I've landed on the top of the South Island, I've managed to get back after uh, doing well over sort of 1,200 kilometres but failing to get to the northern turn point. Um, oh, it was, uh, I haven't done a long flight, uh, when I say a long flight, a flight over sort of 10 or 12 hours for uh, quite some time. I was quite seasoned to doing long flights and spending 14 or 15 hours in the cockpit. Was there a particular weather window that you were looking for? You were looking for uh, northwesterly winds out of a reasonably dry air mass and um, it needs to be a large anticyclone or a very large cyclonic flow and more often than not the winds turn northerly in the North Island bringing moisture down from the uh, from the uh, tropical atmosphere Mm-hmm. and it becomes too wet. So to find the the right weather uh, pattern with the right moisture levels in the atmosphere is very difficult. And uh, so I must have tried to do this flight 25 times. I would say I've, I've started to do the flight 25 times uh, and been um, shot down with weather. Um, so it was really cool just to, to push on to uh, to be able to just trust what I knew and trust the weather maps that we'd looked at um, they still didn't really support the flight uh, but if you're waiting for the perfect day by the time it comes along it's too late so you'll only know about it you'll only know about the perfect day once it's been and gone right. you've got to be up there for any day that might be okay now were you uh, using SkySight for this? I had looked at SkySight the day before with uh, with a buddy, Max Stevens, who was also doing a uh, a long flight. He was on a 1,500-kilometer uh, for his FAI diploma that day, which he completed. And we studied it pretty hard. But during the flight, the weather pattern changed and the winds softened to the north. So um, it uh, we got a message via my daughter, Abby, that, um, well, from Matthew Scutter. Uh, he said... Uh, take the last climb as high as you can because there's nothing up ahead. The wave stops, the wind has stopped. And I'd already left the last climb, and I went, well, I'm not going back uh, because time wasn't on my side on a long flight like that. And uh, you need all the daylight to be able to do it, especially in the weaker conditions that I was flying in. Hmm. So I continued on and managed to get um, get around the turn and back into lift uh, just by the skin of my teeth. And then... Uh, the worry then is you've got 87 kilometres of water to cross into a headwind. You're talking about the Cook Strait. 
Yeah, and Cook Strait is not a friendly place in uh, northwesterly winds. The winds on the surface typically on a wave day will blow anywhere from 45 to anything up to 80 knots. The surface winds in places on the day I crossed were up to 70 knots, um, and it's not survivable if you land in the uh, in the drink. Now, uh, sorry, what was the distance of the Cook Strait you just mentioned? Well, the, the distance, my flight path distance is, well, it's just short of 90 kilometres. And you're at what altitude? I left the North Island at 27,500 feet and was lucky enough to find a wave that went across Cook Strait. And upwind of, upwind of Cook Strait, there's no mountains. So it's kind of a bit of guesswork why that, why that wave was there. But you follow your intu- intuition and... Uh, just fly by the netto and weave around and fly very carefully with your fingertips and you can you can feel where the wave is. So uh, I managed to hit the South Island at 23,000, I think it was. So really comfortable altitude to be getting back to the South Island. Um, it meant I could just fly straight back into the South Island um, Alps and um, pick up the wave again Wow! for the trek south. So now, it was only for- a... For those of us who haven't flown yet in New Zealand, can can you describe the geography of both the South Island and that bit of the North Island that you went to? Well, we're, we're down in the, uh, the southern latitudes around uh, 40 to 45 degrees, so we get the roaring 40 winds. The North Island, well, we've got two islands. We've got two skinny islands, basically, running right angles to the... Uh, well, they run basically northeast to southwest, so you've got the uh, northwesterly flow coming across the Tasman from Australia, mm-hmm. and um, typically the winds soften as you go north, in other words, reduce in strength, and increase substantially when you get to the uh, the southern area of the uh, of New Zealand. So you can go from winds up to 90 knots for typically uh, on a on a windy wave day. Um, up to the North Island, where you're lucky to get 10 to 15 knots. So you're using the whole weather pattern and the whole weather system um, with this northwesterly flow. It hits the mountains, so our average mountains are about six and a half to seven thousand feet. Some of the peaks are up to uh, twelve twelve thousand plus. Um, so you get some high waves. And um, on the day that I was flying, I was uh, using the wave higher than I normally would, so I'd be up to. Oh, quite often 25,000 feet, whereas normally we'd only be going to 15,000 feet. Um, it was a particularly warm day with very hot winds coming off uh, Australia hmm. and still very warm for us by the time they got to New Zealand. Um, now, did so you get was, any airspace issues with commercial traffic there? No, I, um, I notified our air traffic controllers what I was doing and they took a a real interest in um, in what we were doing. They were shifting heavies around us, so seven six sevens were diverted around me, um, and um, and a lot of other traffic. So when I crossed Cook Strait, heading north, I picked a time where there was no traffic, but because I was a little early, I flew a little faster than I expected. Um, I um, I had one isolated patch of lift uh, in the top of the South Island. I climbed to 20,000 feet to do my northern crossing of Cook Strait, and for the best part of an hour, there was not one single piece of air traffic uh, uh, coming into um, Wellington. 
when Wellington's um, an international airport, it's the capital of, of New Zealand, and um, so that's where the traffic is quite heavy at times. Just as I set out to cross Cook Strait, I hit the heavy traffic, so there was up to six or seven aircraft on approach wanting to fly exactly through my flight path to fly into Wellington. And the controller asked me if I could divert and fly back to the west, which was the <laughs> sinking air I'd just crossed. I said, look, unfortunately I can't. I'll end up landing in the drink. And he just immediately started sending aircraft around me. And um, and none of the uh, aircraft complained. Uh, they might have, uh, might have under their breath, but uh, very understanding. And when I didn't need clearances, I would call the controller back and and tell the air traffic controller I didn't need a clearance to a particular altitude so that it would free the airspace up. And I went through about seven shifts of air traffic controller during the day in the 14 and a half hours I was airborne. And the last guy uh, I got, um, I thanked him very much. And uh, and I had a good talk to him because there was no air traffic around. And he said, look, everybody's been, everybody, he means his colleagues at air traffic control had a real interest in it. And some of them were calling back from uh, from their, you know, after they got home from work. They're cheering for you. Yeah, they were. So um, the, uh, a couple of days after I'd landed, I went and got the biggest, largest jar, crystal jar I could find, filled it full of sweets, gift-wrapped it, and took it into the air traffic controller with my glider registration, my name, my score code, and a big thank you. And, <laughs> That's uh, great. <laughs> so a bit of bribery doesn't hurt. No. Now, now back to the flight. At what point did you think you were actually going to make it? Then I crossed the Marima with a hundred kilometres to go, and then, uh, then with about thirty kilometres to go, the weather was just closing in really rapidly. The front started to move. The southerly air mass came in, and I got into the turn uh, about ten minutes after the southerly had uh, had hit, and once again I flew in. Um, and rain and cloud and turbulence on instruments, got the finish point and uh, scuttled out to the north and then had a long trip back to Amerima. It was wow. only uh, it's only 100 kilometres odd back to Amerima uh, and you normally do the trip in oh, 20 minutes uh, with a tailwind and it took me the best part of an hour to get back. The cloud was closing in and the weather was um, not in my favour at all. And I was being really careful because I was fully aware that after 14 and a half, well, 14 odd hours, uh, it's easy to make mistakes. Yeah, you're not as sharp and, as you were. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and um, even though I was hanging out for a beer, uh, I just uh, thought I've got to take this very carefully. And I took an unorthodox route home, even flying into the lee of some mountains that you wouldn't normally uh, wouldn't normally fly into. But I had to do that as just a matter of. Uh, precaution it made my trip home a little slower but safer in the long run when, when you landed were you were you more exhausted or ecstatic what what was your emotions at that point oh no i was just thrilled i was really thrilled i mean i've done a lot of long flights and i've and i mean it wasn't uh, it wasn't the longest by any stretch that i'd done but i couldn't have flown any further um and i couldn't have used i used every bit of my knowledge that i you know that i've gained over years to to complete the flight and when you looked at the sky you had to be pretty motivated to continue on in several in several of the places and I was motivated I was uh, 
really keen to uh, to do the flight, and you have to push on with some of these record flights, even when you're looking down the barrel of a really long retrieve, a long, expensive, timely retrieve. Because yeah. if I'd landed in the North Island, it could have taken three days to get the whole thing cleaned up and back to uh, back to where I was, three or four yeah. days, in fact. Because yeah. it's uh, you're miles from home, and you've got Chris Cook straight to cross, and getting a glider trailer in the car across on the ferry to pick up your uh, glider is uh, is quite a process. So then uh, it's uh, kind of about a fourteen hundred kilometre yeah. uh, straight line trip by road. So well, maybe that's a long drive. Kilometers. Luckily, so, you didn't yeah. have to do it. No, so it's um, yeah, didn't have to do it. But the uh, the flying was interesting, and what was really thrilling was to uh, to be able to take photographs and just send them back to Abby who would pass them on to friends and put them on social media because it motivated people and that's kind of what it, this thing's about. It's not a look at me thing, it's kind of motivating your friends to do stuff and motiva- motivating people around um, anybody who's really interested in soaring to uh, to get them to, to do stuff that they normally wouldn't. Sure, the and, mainstream uh, media was really interested in this, I noticed. Yeah, yeah. There was uh, there's a sports editor for one of the uh, TV stations here has been following what we've been doing for quite some time, and um, yeah, he did a really good thing for promoting gliding, really showing people what you can do in a glider, and and um, and you know the average public sort of went, what you can fly a glider from you know from this point to that point and yeah. back again, because uh, people don't believe it's possible that you can fly a glider that far and cross cock straight twice and so forth. So, uh, I've done long flights before in the Andes, um, out of a, you know in Argentina, uh, but it's a lot easier in Argentina. You don't have that that treacherous stretch of water, and you don't have the, uh, the moist atmosphere and changeable uh, weather conditions that we get here right. in New Zealand. Now, Terry, you almost had three records in this flight, but the FAI gliding rules have changed in the last uh, little while. Talk to me about this this starting error that uh, resulted in you not getting two records that you would have gotten if you'd done the flight a year ago? Uh, well, I didn't read the latest uh, reprint of the sporting code, and to the best of my knowledge, there was only three changes to the sporting code, so I was told. But I did not realise that they had done away with the quadrants for starts and put in that you must cross a start line. So that has changed, because I've done out and return flights before and used quadrants and got world records. In fact, the guy who I've beaten on this out and return probably used a quadrant. So I cannot figure out why the the powers that be continue to fiddle around with the rules, chop and change, and every time they reissue the sporting code, they make these subtle changes. So this will be the fourth world record that I've missed out on because of changes to the sporting code. And fair warning to them, people are not trying these flights because... These guys that keep changing the rules and making things too complicated. People don't want to even do badge flights half the time because they because they can't keep up with the rules. It's all too complicated. The system must be, for the sake of uh, continuing on for people to achieve things in our sport, the system must be made simpler. It is just far too difficult. Yeah. And another and drizzle it- I've got is that they've now one of, I've I've had three different GPSs that have been outlawed and you're not allowed to use them for world records. And once again, the Cambridge 302 is not allowed to be used for world record flying. There's not been a problem, so why come up with a rule to stop a... If it's not broken, don't fix it. 
I wish they would stop messing about with changing the rules. As you can see, I'm grumpy about it. Yeah, no, I would be. be I would be too. And the thing is, you know, you're in the middle of your flying season uh, in the southern hemisphere. You would think if they're going to change the rules that much, they would give like a, a six month lead up before the changes come into effect. Oh well, they did. They they changed them uh, last year. Uh, I think it was. It was some time ago. Right, but I thought um, it was last fall. But, but, uh, but you know, do you have to keep re- reading every single document that comes out? I mean, some people love this stuff. I don't. Yeah. I'm a pilot. I'm a practical person. I like the flying side of it. I do not like all this. Te- you know, or I'm not a technical whiz. On top of that, to claim this world record, I've had to remove my uh, clear nav out of my instrument panel in the glider and send it off to the States to have it calibrated. There's no one in New Zealand that can calibrate an instrument that size. Yeah, they've got to make so, it a bit easier. That's uh... Uh, It's just way too hard. It's just ridiculous. Yeah. Uh, and that's why people aren't trying it. Uh, so, anyhow. Well, I'm, maybe I'm that's a, something that we can, the gliding community at large can push. Listen, Terry, finally, um, I noticed on Facebook that you're hoping to complete another uh, big flight this year with your daughter. You want to tell me about that? Yeah, it's not a record. It's just uh, a flight of fancy, if you like. It's something to make the New Zealand public go well. You can fly a glider from one end of the country to the other. Nobody's tried it. So we will take off from Amerima, try and fly to the south coast, um, which is a, uh, quite an epic flight in itself. Uh, then head north, go do the full length of the, north, of the South Island, cross Cook Strait, go up the, south, uh, go up the North Island, as far as we can, cross the main dividing mountains and try and thermal and ridge saw our way as far north as we possibly can. I doubt if it's possible to get all the way to uh, the top of New Zealand in one flight, but I think it may be possible to at least get to uh, Auckland or maybe slightly north of Auckland. And, uh, and what are you going to be flying? Oh, I've got an ASH-25MI um, and uh, hope to be flying that. Well, I'll uh, hopefully we'll be able to watch you uh, complete that flight with your daughter Abby, and uh, good luck with that. And thank you so much for speaking to me on on the Thermal Podcast. All right, good. Take care and fly safe. Okay, we'll give it a Cheers. crack. Okay, bye. Cheers. Terry Delore spoke to me from his home in Christchurch, New Zealand. Terry recently completed an amazing out and return flight of one thousand seven hundred and thirty kilometers in his ASW-27B. The flight took him from New Zealand's South Island across the Cook Strait to the North Island of New Zealand and back again. Denmark is a small country with a dedicated group of glider pilots. Morten Bennick is one of those pilots, and he flies a Ventus II out of the Caldred airfield. He has flown some remarkable flights over Denmark and made some great time-lapse videos of those flights that you can find on YouTube. On these videos, you can see that crossing large bodies of water is a necessity if you want to fly a 500-kilometer triangle flight in Denmark. To hear all about it, I've reached Morten Bennick at his home in Copenhagen. Hello, Morten. Uh, welcome to the Thermal Podcast. Thank you very much, and thank you very much for inviting me. It's uh, surely a very interesting podcast you have made. Well, thanks, and uh, you've made some very interesting time-lapse videos. I find them fascinating when I look at the amount of water that you cross there in Denmark. 
talk to me about flight preparation. What do, what do you do when you're planning to do one of these flights over so much water? Well, uh, first of all, you of course looking at the weather forecast uh, days before to make sure that it's it's not too windy, that the cloud base the cloud base will be high enough, and and also that the uh, the air temperature is not too high, so there's uh, too much difference between the temperature of the water and the temperature of the air. So that's really important, eh? the difference between the temperature of the water and the temperature of the air. It's, it's very, very important, especially when you get to the areas where there's a lot of sea and only a few islands. Mm-hmm. So put me put me in the cockpit. Give me an idea of what you're looking for on a, on a classic 500-kilometer day like you've posted on YouTube. What are the conditions that you're looking for? Where are the winds coming from? What kind of uh, stuff are you looking at? The, the best weather for me will be that we have a an, an northwesterly flow of, of unstable air. Um, not too windy, five, maybe ten knots. And uh, so we also have some uh, cloud streets that we can use. And if we can come up, we have an altitude of at least uh, 1,300, 1,400 meters. Then it's certainly uh, is, is the way I'm... Uh, the weather I'm, I'm looking for. Hmm. No, I re- yeah, sorry? No, I, I was going to say, I read somewhere that part of the concept, I read it on a, an article somewhere, that Danish glider pilots call this soaring on islands. Is that is that the concept? Uh, it's a good word because it's, it's actually, what it's all about is actually soaring on islands. Uh, the um, concept of soaring on islands was made by, by a, a very good pilot called Vladimir Federov. And um, um, he has also made a very good uh, YouTube uh, video where he talk about the complete concept. Mm-hmm. And he probably put more words on it than we have done in uh, the years before. Okay. So put, um, put, put me in the cockpit then. How do you incorporate the concept of soaring on islands into your flying? Well, I can give you an, an explanation of how do we actually start uh, from our airfield because it's more or less starts um, immediately when we are started. Our airfield is less than five kilometers from the sea. Mm-hmm. And on a normal conditions, everybody will think that there will be a, a thermal suicide to, to have a, to glide from there. But we are so lucky that if it is uh, western or uh, up to west, uh, north, northwest, north, then uh, the wind uh, will, due to the way that the island is, is made, will make an, an cloud street that is very, very easy for us to start. So I will typically have a, either winds launch or do it by aerotow and then uh, find a thermal, get up, and then uh, start on the task. And the first 100 kilometers is normal thermal flying. Mm-hmm. It's, it's over um, and uh, an island called Sealand, and from there, then we have the first passing, and it's only uh, five or six kilometers. So that's an easy one. But the next place we come come to the next few islands, there the thermos is usually not as good. So then it have to be slower. And then after the ne- these two islands, the, the last one of them called uh, Lolland, then the the first big uh, passing is there. So what? Uh, how big is this body of water that you're crossing? It's 
uh, in this case, uh, the first one is approximately uh, 20 kilometers. Mm -hmm. So what so, kind of decision are you making as a pilot before you leave the shoreline of one island and make this crossing? What are the factors you're looking at? First of all, I'm looking for what will be the altitude I will reach the other shore at. Mm -hmm. And then also, how far away or how much inland um, do I expect to fly before I will find a thermal? Mm -hmm. Because 20 kilometers is, I mean, in in, uh, in Aventus, you're not going to lose that much height, actually. But you still have to fly a little bit when you're on the other side and trying to search for the thermals. Mm -hmm. And so also during the crossing, um, at any time, always try to say, okay, now I'll reach the shore on this height, and if I can see something, let's, let's assume I find an area with, uh, with sink or something, I could uh, turn the glider 180 degrees and go back. So I'm looking backwards as well. And if there's an island in between, you can also say that could be a, a place to land. Okay, so you're always covering yourself. You've always got your plan B. You're always yeah. thinking ahead. Yeah. I I, um, I have a Ventus and it's not very good to to land at the sea yet. <laughs> yeah. So, but uh, but that's you know joking aside, it's a serious consideration yeah. when you're flying over those kind of bodies of water. Have you thought about what would happen if you had to ditch? Um, I have been thinking shortly about it. In in the spring, I say if something happens and you need to ditch, then you actually are in a trouble because the water is very cold. Mm-hmm. But otherwise, it was in the summertime. Maybe you'll find, to say, if you have screwed up completely, try to land near a, a, a boat or a ship or something like that. Right, right. But usually, you can say that the good thing about flying above the sea is that, well, there's a lot. Of, there's not a lot of of sink there since there's basically no thermals. Right, the right. And with a glider like you have, and the glide angle, you got enough altitude from the one shore. You're, you're it's a pretty safe bet you're going to make it across. Yeah, usually I will say go for, for 500 meters when you reach the other shore. Mm -hmm. Now, is this the kind of flying that most of the, the pilots at your, your club do? No, we are only a few pilots who's actually doing it. Mm -hmm. So most of them will go for either local flying around the airfield or they will go for local cross-country on, on, um, on sea land. Okay. That's most of the time. And it's actually also most of the time that, that we do it. Because if it's too windy and the cloud base is not very high, we don't have a chance to get to the other side. So so this particular flight that uh, I've seen you uh, post on YouTube, this 500-kilometer flight from a few years ago, yeah. for Denmark, that's a pretty remarkable flight, isn't it? Um, it's not every day you can do a 500-kilometers uh, triangle. and uh, But... I think from an, a normal task, I've done up to 700 kilometers, and there are other people who have done up to 800, and I'm not sure about 900, but more than 800 kilometers. In, in Denmark, within the uh, confines yeah. of Denmark, wow. Yeah, but, it, but it's not, the task is not a triangle, it's, uh, it's a task with many, with many waypoints, otherwise you can't do it. Right, 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 right. So talk to me a bit about your, your Ventus 2. Do you enjoy flying this glider? I love it. I simply have to say it. it's a it's a really really nice airplane. Um, I have now had it for six or seven years, and uh, I've enjoyed every minute of it. It's so easy to fly in the air, 
the flaps is easy to use and it gives uh, very good performance when you're on cross country. Hmm. Well, I've I, I got to say, I, I love the images that you've posted of flying over Denmark. I mean, it looks like spectacular countryside cliffs, everything to fly over. It's very photogenic. It is, and um, there's a lot of places. Sometimes it, it takes a little while to get there, but uh, most of the places is very scenery. Especially mm -hmm. what I prefer to fly, even though it's very near to Copenhagen and, and uh, to the Copenhagen airport, is the northern part of Zealand. It's a very, very nice area where there's a, there's a very nice mix of uh, lakes and cloud. Uh, sorry, and and, and uh, forest um, and normal land and so it's it's a very nice area to fly around hmm. so what's on your flying list for this coming season do you have any particular goals in mind yeah the uh, the goal I have this year is actually having not a lot to do with Denmark it has something to do with uh, with France um, last year I was so um, lucky to, to win the 15 meter championship in Denmark so I was uh, qualified to uh, to go to the worlds in the, the uh, Champagne area uh, <laughs> northeast of, of Paris so that fantastic that sounds great yeah so and that's I'm, what a one a one day drive a little bit longer from Denmark straight south yeah it's, it, it can be done in, in one day if you if you start early in the morning you could be there in six or seven in the evening something like that hmm have to start early but then you could be there yes well that that's an exciting contest for you to fly with a bit of luck uh, i i can chat with you later on uh, in the summer and, and get an idea of how that contest went for you so uh we'll chat then i hope yeah that could be fun to talk about so martin thank you very much for talking to me about flying over denmark in your uh in your ventus uh we'll, we'll talk again take care thank you very much and thank you for for the interview okay bye 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 Morton Bennick spoke to me from Copenhagen, Denmark. Go to YouTube and search for Morton Bennick. That's B-E-N-N-I-C-K, and you'll see his fabulous time-lapse videos. 2020 marks the 25th anniversary of the first international vintage sailplane meet at Harris Hill in Elmira, New York. In 1995, I took my 1942 LK-10A across the border to join the fun. It's a great place to fly and the gliders are amazing. Whether you're into wood or glass, there's something there for every pilot. The dates are July 4th to 11th, 2020. Hope to see you there. Look for the yellow and blue LK with Canadian registration and say hello. And make sure you stick around because later in the podcast, we're getting inverted with aerobatic pilot Laura Radigan. This month on Gliding Club Confidential, the D-Side Gliding Club in Scotland. Many of you probably heard Amy Jo Randalls, a.k.a. Pilot with a Paintbrush, on episode number 8. When she's not working on her latest masterpiece, Amy Jo is at the D-Side Gliding Club getting as much airtime as she can. I've reached Amy Jo Randalls in Glasgow, Scotland. Amy Jo, thanks for coming back on the thermal. Tell me where the, the club is located. So... A Boeing Gliding Club, um, D-Side Gliding Club, is located just a few miles west of Aberdeen in Scotland. It's nestled right in the middle of the mountains, um, which is a really fantastic location for both wave and thermal flying. Talk to me about the local geography. What does it look like? So it's pretty mountainous. 
Uh, the mountains aren't quite as scary as you might find in New Zealand or the Alps, but if you're not experienced, they're still pretty daunting and still take quite a lot of expertise to fly around. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a really beautiful area. Um, the Rounder Boyne itself is a bit of a valley and some plains, so in terms of thermal flying and local soaring, that's really great. But you really don't have to go far to go uphill to some quite high peaks, um, which are... Yeah, <laughs> they're, they're, they're pretty fun to fly around. Um, you don't have to fly too far either to get right over into the wilderness near around Ben Nevis kind of area, and you really don't have to go too far to find some really interesting grounds to fly around or some really fascinating lochs, which can create some really brilliant wave conditions. So is it also ridge flying or mostly wave? It is mostly wave. Wave's definitely what a Boeing's known for, and it's definitely a Boeing speciality. Um, there are small ridges around, but it's not the primary reason you'd go there, and it's more the kind of thing you'd be doing if you just suddenly find yourself a bit bored and you just happen to find that that little bit of the hill was working. Right. But, so you wouldn't set out to go for a ridge flight at a Boeing. So describe the airfield to me. Does it have a paved runway? Is it all grass? What does it look like? So the airfield's pretty small as far as they go. We have two tarmac runways, which are pretty narrow, that run pretty much east-west. Usually for club operations, you'll take off on one and land on the other, but it's always worth keeping an eye out just on what they're doing. You've got, as you come into the club off the main road, you've got a car park in the clubhouse. Um, Looking across the airfield, you'll have your two runways. Um, And just on the south side, you've got the hangars where we've got a fairly decent fleet of gliders and um, behind that you've got a caravan park as well so it's, it's a pretty small airfield but the setup works really well um, and I've certainly never had any issues with it. And how about membership how many people in your club? It's pretty small membership as far as some of the clubs down south go we've got around 100 members um, maybe 40 or so are, are regularly active um, the junior cohort up there is actually pretty decently sized mm-hmm. um, and we'll definitely hope that that grows in the coming years as well. And talk to me about the fleet. What kind of gliders uh, does the club own and, and use? So the club's currently got two single seat gliders. Um, we've got an SZD Junior um, and also a Shemperth Discus. Um, I particularly like the Discus. It's very nicely looked after. And in terms of training aircraft, uh, there's currently a Pooch and a very brand new Percos, which I particularly like as well. Hmm, great. And I assume it's all aerotow there? Yep. Um, a Boeing is aerotow only. We've got a few tugs. We've got a Eurofox, which is used most of the time um, and also for cheaper tows. But when it's a little bit rougher or we can't use the Eurofox, the, the pony comes out and that usually makes everybody quite happy because who doesn't love a pony? <laughs> right, of course. Now, talk to me about the, the fees, your annual dues at the club and what does an aerotow cost? So... Just a standard 2,000 foot aerotow at a Boeing is £32.50. As far as membership goes, it's pretty good. It's around £240 a year if you're a full member, um, less if you're a junior member or if you're a country member so you live quite far away like I am. Um, Fees per per minute um, are about 40p a minute, which I think is pretty average Mm -hmm. for a UK club. But given the conditions that we have at a Boeing, um, I'm given what we get to do and what we get to see. I think they're all very reasonable prices. Right. And can guests uh, fly at your location? I mean, you've done a great job on, on describing this place. I want to go fly there. And Can glider pilots from around the world show up and maybe go for a ride? Oh, definitely, yeah. Um, there are yearly expeditions to a Boeing from multiple gliding clubs in the UK 
um, to come and fly in the amazing wave we had. Um, and I believe a couple of years ago, we had some Germans that came along, um, brought their fleet of very nice shiny gliders and actually flew to the Hebrides <laughs> and back. Wow, um, but really? anyone, <laughs> it was quite spectacular, yeah. But no, anyone can just shoot the club an email um, and come along and give it a bash and just see the beautiful Scottish scenery for what it is. Finally, Amy Jo, what's the best thing about your gliding club? I think the best thing about a boy is how friendly it is. There's not many clubs you can just turn up at and you'll pretty much be welcome with open arms. Nothing's ever too much trouble for any of the members and it doesn't matter what you need doing. You'll always find someone that is able to give you a hand and help you out and that really makes the club atmosphere a very laid back and relaxed one so you're never afraid to ask for anything at all and I really love that about it. It just makes me feel so, so at ease when I go there. Amy Joe, thank you very much for speaking to me, and I look forward to visiting a Boyne at some point. No problem at all. I'd look forward to seeing you there. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. Amy Joe Randalls, also known as Pilot with a Paintbrush, spoke to me from Glasgow, Scotland. When gliding cross-country or even local flights of some distance, it pays to think ahead. Do you have a plan if you land in a remote location with no cell phone coverage? In the last decade or so, a variety of new satellite-based emergency personal location products have become available. Phil Lightstone is a pilot, an aviation writer, and fellow podcaster specializing in aviation technology. His podcast is called Plane Talk and can be found on Apple Podcasts and Google Play. I've reached Phil in Toronto, Canada. So let's start with the basics. There are a lot of acronyms associated with the various emergency location devices out there. Talk to me about the products. What is available to pilots right now? Well, we have uh, ELTs, which for a certain segment of the of the industry is a, a, a mandated requirement. Of course, not so much with, uh, with gliders. Then we have PLBs, personal locating beacons, which uses the same... Um, uh, infrastructure as uh, uh, ELTs. Mm -hmm. Then we have uh, uh, PLDs, personal locating devices, which are portable devices uh, using uh, the uh, low Earth orbit satellite systems uh, from Global Star or uh, Iridium. So those are things like the spot devices, right? That's that's absolutely right. The, mm -hmm. The two big players are, as you said, spot and uh, Garmin through their acquisition of uh, uh, a company called uh, DeLorean. Mm -hmm. um, also have um, smartphones, so the ability just to natively uh, dial 911. We also have to, to remember that cellular is not ubiquitous. Uh, certainly in Canada, Canada is a, a, a large geography. Although I, I must say, I, my wife... Uh, we have iPhones, and she follows me on FriendFinder when I'm flying cross-country in southwest Ontario. She can actually, for the most part, follow my flights. Nice. And, uh, and the build-out of the cellular network really follows the, uh, uh, in Ontario, follows the 401. Mm -hmm. and, and Which is the you, highway here in Ontario, the major highway. The major highway, that's right. And not necessarily guaranteed um, cellular coverage. So I like to think of it that, God forbid, if I'm in a, a, a forest, um, I want a bunch of different ways to ensure that someone's going to uh, search and rescue will come and uh, uh, find me. 
ho- sooner, hopefully, rather than later. So your, your aircraft is equipped with an ELT. So part of the belts and suspenders thing you're talking about, you have a secondary device, probably two. What are they? So I have, um, again, I, I'm a, perhaps a, a little overkill. Um, I've been using Spot since they first uh, came out. So mm-hmm. um, I also have a personal locating beacon, and it talks to the uh, international SARSAT uh, network. Mm-hmm. I also have a Garmin InReach Mini. And again, it's um, in, in this particular uh, case, um, I, I'm relying on three entirely different networks from three entirely different providers. Mm-hmm. And then again, it's just kind of belts and suspenders. The great thing about the PLB, um, size of uh, the one I have from AirTex, it's about the size of a package of cigarettes. Mm-hmm. Um, One-time uh, purchase price, and then you just, no, no subscriptions, you just tr- turn it on. Now, it doesn't have some of the, so, I'm sorry, you just turn it on when, uh, yeah, God forbid, you ha- have uh, a, di- um, a distress. And that's assuming you've, you've made a, a successful forced landing and you're safe somewhere on the ground but far away from civilization. Yeah, that's absolutely right. The, I, the idea is that you have something in, uh, on your person, in your hand, when you exit the, air, uh, the aircraft, exit the glider, that uh, you can uh, you know, take out uh, uh, with you. So in, in the gliding world, we don't, it, specifically in my environment, we don't carry ELTs, but many of us carry things like spot messenger devices, which have been pretty popular. And I think one of the reasons spot is popular is because you've got the ability to leave a, a, a so-called breadcrumb trail. So if something happens and nobody hears from you, in theory, they can find a rough circle where you may have landed. Is are those devices the ones you, you personally recommend, or what? What do you suggest? Yeah, I absolutely. Um, you know the 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 uh, personal locating devices, and this, uh, uh, as you said, um, Spot's been doing it um, for the, uh, the the longest, so they're the most mature um, uh, uh, company. Um, Spot uh, also owns their own network so spot is a division of global star global star is on their second generation of low earth uh, uh, orbit and they're generating about 1.3 billion messages per year um, and those messages are spot messages uh, right the non-emergency ones yeah uh, so far spot has saved um, roughly just south of 7,000 uh, lives hmm. since the inception. The uh, personal locating devices, and whether we're talking about Spot or the, the Garmin um, InReach products, um, they've got gained popularity because it's not they're not just focused on a single industry like aviation. Skiers, hikers... Whitewater rafters, mountain climbers, you know, etc., and that's this whole point that satellite, the satellite networks, um, give you more ubiquitous coverage than um, cellular. So, as a glider pilot, the the two devices that 
come to mind for me would be a choice between Spot or the Garmin one. Is there one that's more expensive or one that's better? How do you compare these two devices? Sure. And the Move, um, when we think of uh, Spots, we've been... I think uh, a lot of folks think of the Spot Gen 3s um, that are, are very simple, cost-effective uh, products with uh, uh, a reasonable annual subscription. The movement has been into um, uh, Spot X with Bluetooth um, as well as the Garmin InReach Mini that where you're now... Um, pairing with your um, iPhone or Android device. And you have now the ability to send and receive text and text messages and emails. Your probability of survival goes up significantly if you're in two-way communication with the folks coming to, um, uh, to, uh, to find you and take you back to civilization. Mm -hmm. So which one gives you the best bang for your buck, in your opinion? Well, best bang for your buck is no doubt the Spot Gen 3. Mm -hmm. In fact, um, both Spot and, and Garmin have um, sales going on. In U.S. dollars, the um, Spot Gen 3 uh, is at 99, uh, 99 bucks uh, U.S., the mm -hmm. Garmin InReach Mini. Again, smaller than a package of uh, cigarettes uh, is $275. And the annual subscriptions, again, depending on, um, on the features that, um, that you select, um, the spot products about $200 US uh, a year, mm -hmm. and the Garmin inReach is about $959 US. Right. So no doubt the spot gives you um better bang for uh, uh for your buck so based on our conversation it's almost negligent if you're a pilot specifically a glider pilot going cross country or a private pilot going cross country to just rely on your elts you really should have some kind of uh device with you as, as a backup is, is that how you look at it absolutely i i, I kind of put it I like to think of it in, in this term. How much is your life worth? That's well, it's uh, it's one of those things that safety is paramount in our industry. We don't want to have to use it, but uh, if we need to, it's nice to know that it's there. And I'll be I'll be checking my things, uh, my, my batteries and my uh, spot uh, probably later today. So, Phil, thank you very much for uh, bringing us up to speed on the latest products that are out there. And uh, I hope to speak to you again on the thermal at some point. Oh, this would be great. This was really... Uh... Super, and, and uh, thank you very much, Harry, for okay. having me on the show. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Pilot Phil Lightstone spoke to me from Toronto. His podcast is called Plane Talk and can be found on Apple Podcasts and Google Play. And now a word about our sponsor, SkySight, the fabulous weather app designed by a glider pilot with glider pilots in mind. Earlier in the show, you may have heard Terry Delore talk about how he used SkySight on his epic 1,730-kilometer flight in New Zealand. For listeners of The Thermal who are interested in trying out SkySight to maximize their cross-country flying or just figure out if it's worth the drive to the gliding club, use the voucher promo code THERMAL in capital letters and you'll get a 14-day free trial. 
If you want to learn more, listen to SkySight's founder, Matthew Scudder, on episode number seven, where he tells us about how he came up with the concept for SkySight and how it works. Go to skysight.io to sign up. Glider aerobatic flying, especially glider aerobatic contest flying, is a rather niche corner of the gliding world. Many of us have done the basics of aerobatic flying, but then go back to blue up and green down. Glider pilot Laura Radigan thrives in the world of glider aerobatics. A 5,000 foot toe followed by aerial glider contortions is what makes her smile. Earlier this year, Laura flew her SED 59 at the Estrella Classic Glider Aerobatic Contest in Arizona. I've reached Laura at her home in Merritt Island, Florida. Hello, Laura. Thanks for uh, coming on to the, the podcast and chatting with me. Oh, it's my pleasure. So this contest that you recently flew in Arizona, tell me about the contest and, and how it went for you. Well, the, uh, uh, the first annual Estrella Cup was a aerobatic competition held at Arizona Soaring. And uh, because of the nature of the contest, uh, most of the pilots did not bring their own ships. I was the only contestant that brought my own glider, and I came all the way from Florida and trailered my glider to Arizona for the contest. But most of the participants actually flew the uh, aerobatic sailplane that they have at Estrella Gliderport, and the uh, owner and operator, Jason Stevens, was the safety pilot in the back seat. His plane, his rules. Makes sense. So why did you elect to take your own glider? Well, I've had somewhat of a dubious history with the MDM-1 Fox. Uh, as far as getting up and getting down safely, not a problem. But when it comes to flying it, at its maximum performance, uh, I tend to fly it a bit slower than I should, and I've had some rather odd things happen. Uh, suddenly snap out of control, go into an upside-down spin, just weird things like that. Nothing that was dangerous that I couldn't recover from, thankfully, because of altitude, but if I had the choice between flying my own glider that I know very well or flying someone else's glider that I don't know quite so well, I will take the chance and take my glider every time. That makes sense to me. So how did you how did you do in this contest? Well, I finished second in the advanced category. Of course, there were only two of us in the advanced category, Jason Stevens, who uh, downgraded from unlimited to advanced, and he is uh, a previous a U.S. national champion and member of the world team, so he's mm -hmm. quite a good pilot. Plus, he's a full-time glider instructor, aerobatics instructor and coach, so he flies a lot more than I do. Uh, so getting squashed like a bug by someone of his caliber, <laughs> although it hurt, it didn't hurt nearly as much as if someone closer to my circumstances had uh, done the same. So give, give me the basics. How how is it judged? Because I'm I'm a glider pilot, but I, you know, I don't fly aerobatic contests, and I've actually never witnessed one. So, 
Well, the closest thing I could say to the way an aerobatic contest is judged is very similar to what you would see in Olympic figure skating. You have a panel of judges, and the scoring is done on a point system based upon uh, the accuracy with which you fly the figures. Each figure, be it a loop or a roll or whatever whatever is called for in the sequence, has specific grading criteria, and any deviation from that perf- perfection results in deduction. So everybody starts out with a perfect score, and the judges just whittle away and whittle away until you're left with what you're left with. Um, what happens is, in a contest, typically you will fly three, sometimes four sequences. A sequence consists of 10 individual figures. So the first sequence that you would fly typically in a contest would be a known sequence. And that is a sequence that is created and distributed to all pilots in the International Aerobatics Club at the beginning of the year. So you have all year to practice that sequence. Everyone in each category flies the same sequence. So the sportsman category would all fly the sportsman sequence. The intermediate would fly their sequence. The advanced would fly their sequence. And the unlimited would fly their sequence. Hmm. So, And and these guys are just sitting, or the judges are on the ground with binoculars? Yes, binoculars, and in some cases their eyes. Hmm. It just depends on how sharp their vision is. Okay. Some of us, our vision isn't as great as others. Right. So the next sequence you would fly would be what they call the free program. The free program would be very similar to a free program in figure skiing. It would be a program that you designed yourself, and you design it in such a way that it highlights your strengths. So if there's a particular figure that you have difficulty with, you leave it out of your free program. Okay. If you have a certain figure that you're exceptional at, you want to have that in your program. The next figure, uh, the next sequence, or uh, two sequences, or three sequences, depending on how long the contest is, are all unknown sequences. Those sequences are created by the judge panel, and you see them about eight hours before you fly them, and you're not allowed to practice them. So the first time you fly them is for score. So is that why I've, I've seen images, or I've actually seen it at air shows, where you have aerobatic pilots who sort of walk around in circles with their arms out, visualizing what they're about to do? We call that the arresty dance. Yes. <laughs> uh, people, people think that we're crazy, but there really is a method to our madness. Right. Arresti was a Spanish uh, fighter pilot back, I believe it was in World War II, I, I'm not quite sure, but he basically created a shorthand where there were symbols that represented each aerobatic maneuver. And what we do, we're given this sequence card in what we call Arresti code, and we read that like a language, mm-hmm. and we walk the sequence mentally visualizing and in many cases applying whatever control input. You'll see us moving our arms like we're moving the stick and pressing on the rudder pedals and spinning or whatever is appropriate for that sequence. 
we're trying to get in our mind how the sequence flies, how it flows, mm -hmm. what speeds we need for each entry or exit from a figure. The, the, the critical thing in glider aerobatics is energy management. Depending upon the category you're flying, you either start at 5,000 feet above the ground and finish your sequence no lower than 1,500 feet above ground, or in the advanced and unlimited categories, you start your sequence at 4,000 feet above the ground, and you end your sequence at about 600 feet above the ground. Hmm. And it's usually one so, sequence per flight? That's correct, yes. Okay. So you fly 10 figures within those altitude constraints. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So the critical thing is, you're always going downhill. You're always at an energy deficit. So if you need to increase your speed to execute a figure, the only way you're going to gain that speed is by diving. Right, right. So obviously, if you're coming out of some type of a rolling maneuver where you have large control deflections inducing a tremendous amount of drag in the aircraft, like a let's say for a four-point roll or an eight-point roll, and then this next uh, figure in the sequence is a loop, you have to go into the four-point roll with enough speed so that when you come out of the four-point roll, you have enough speed to complete the loop without losing all your energy at the top and falling out of the top of the loop because you want to keep the loop round. So does that make so glider really, aerobatics more difficult than somebody flying a pits? Well, it's it. I wouldn't call it different. I, I wouldn't call it more difficult. I would call it different. Mm -hmm. In the case of the glider, energy is our enemy. We're always trying to find that magic amount, extra amount of speed or the extra couple hundred feet of altitude. In the case of a powered aircraft, when you dive in, you've got torque and P-factor and spiraling slipstream to deal with. Right. So it will cause you to go off heading or shallow or steep in your dives. So with although you have an engine in powered aerobatics, not only do you have the energy, but you have all of the adverse effects that that energy creates. So glider aerobatics don't have uh, off, as many off-heading uh, deductions because we don't have torque and P-factor to deal with. But we do tend to shallow as we accelerate because if you go into a dive as your speed increases, the amount of lift over the wings increases. And if you don't use a lot of nose-down trim and forward stick pressure, your dive will shallow. Mm -hmm. As your speed increases. Put me in the cockpit. Of, so I imagine on, on a knee, do you have a, a pad with the sequence you're about to fly? And do, are you looking at the instruments a lot, keeping your head out? How, how, does it, how do you do that? Put me in the cockpit. Well, okay. When The first thing, the, the sequence card is typically taped to uh, an open space on the instrument panel. Or in the case, I have a, 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 a stock that it sits on, so it's pretty much in my face without obscuring any of the instruments. Mm -hmm. The principal instruments that you use during an aerobatic sequence are your airspeed indicator, your altimeter, 
and your G-meter. Okay. So uh, the airspeed indicator obviously will tell you if you're going fast enough to execute the, f the next figure in the sequence. Your altimeter is your, okay, I'm too low, I'm done now. Uh, that, that basically tells you, you know, if you're going to get low penalties or high penalties. And your G-meter is telling you how hard your pull is. Now, the reason the G-meter is important, let's use a loop as an example. If you start, let's say, at a speed of 110 knots indicated, from the level in a no-wind condition, you would make, and I'm using numbers for my aircraft, everyone else's aircraft is different, so I'm not giving instruction here, I'm just giving examples. Mm -hmm. My aircraft, I would make a 4G pull to the vertical, and then as I hit the vertical, I would start to relax the pull to allow the glider to float over the top at 1G or even slightly negative. And then as I come back around, I start increasing the pull back up to 4Gs again, and the G-meter is telling me the symmetry oh, that, okay. the, that the upward movement and the downward movement are equal in shape. Interesting. So that's that the G meter allows you that information that you wouldn't get from any of the other flight instruments. So there's always a lot to think about. There's always a lot of think to think about and you have to do this in such a way that you present the program to the judges so they see what they expect to see because mm -hmm. For example, if you're doing a point roll and you go one and two and three and four and, the problem with that is that gliders roll so slowly that if you just stop momentarily at each one of the points, the judges are unable to perceive the stop in motion and you'll get deductions for no hesitation in the role. Hmm. So whereas you might see it one and two and three and four, and they see a continuous loop. So instead of that, you have to make distinct long pauses at each one of the point positions. Huh. There's, a, there's a lot going on here. You know, that's a very good description you just gave. I, I really felt like I was in the cockpit. Good, good. It's, uh, it, it's not what we see that is scored. It's what the judges see. Uh, I always try to give them uh, the most visually stunning side of the aircraft. Uh, it's, it, many of these things are things that I've learned not only from aerobatics, but from talking to air show performers, what what does the audience want to see? You right. have to think of the judges first and foremost as an audience. You have to give them what they you have to give them what they want to see. Sure, put on a show. Right, exactly. It's most you'll find that most every uh, air show performer came up through the aerobatic ranks. That's where they really got their chops. Huh. Look, they Laura, knew how, how to fly these. I'm sorry, go ahead. No, I was going to say, how, how did you get into uh, aerobatic flying? Well, I 
started about six years ago in general aviation. I started because I got a Groupon coupon on my computer for a glider ride. I bought the glider ride. I went out. I took a ride uh, in a two-seat glider, fell in love with soaring, got my rating. And I was after I got my rating, I was actually uh, out flying a rental glider when in the midst of exiting a thermal, I got hit by a gust of wind. And I got rolled upside down. So it doesn't happen all the time, but it's not unheard of, and it, both in general aviation and soaring. There's upset incidents that happen all the time. So uh, I realized after I recovered from that incident, I realized that I needed additional training. And so I sought out training, and I found out from that training that not only did I enjoy aerobatics tremendously, but I had an aptitude for it. Uh, I don't get sick. I don't get disoriented. I just really enjoy the G-forces. I really enjoy flying inverted. Uh, the joke around the glider port is if Laura is flying around and she's right side up, something's wrong. So, so you went from solo to competition aerobatic glider pilot in six years. Oh, absolutely, yes. Yes, 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 yes. Wow, that's great. And I and I and I and I did and I did a single engine land rating and a seaplane rating and a tailwheel endorsement and a complex and a high performance and yeah, and, and I've flown with Patty Wagstaff up in St. Augustine in the her aerobatic course in the powered aerobatics. Yeah, all of that in six years, sure. Wow, that's great. Good for you. That's wonderful. Thank you. Yeah. So what's what's next on, on the contest front for you? Well, the next contest, actually, I've got a, uh, there's a soaring contest here in Florida. Uh, it's called the Seniors, where they have, uh, you have to be like 55 or older to even enter. Uh, and for the last couple of years, I have done uh, an air show routine for the opening ceremonies of the Seniors where I put the smoke system on the glider and I play the music and all that kind of thing, like an air show. Yeah, great. That's going on in March. Then my glider is going to be at the uh, Sun and Fun uh, Fly-In and Expo in at the Lakeland Linder Airport. I'm going to be displaying there and giving ad hoc seminars uh, during the Sun and Fun Fly-In. It's going to be on... Uh, right off of Warbird Row at the Aerobatics Club booth. So please, if anybody's in Lakeland, stop by and say hello. The, then in um, September, I've got two events. I've got an event out in, in Colorado uh, where we're going to be competing with the Air Force Academy team, which is a really great bunch of pilots. And then shortly after that, I'm going to Salina, Kansas, for the U.S. Nationals. So that'll be my fourth U.S. Nationals. Well, that sounds exciting. Yep. It's always always a good time. Well, Laura, it's, it's been a real pleasure speaking to you, and I've, I've got far more insight into the world of, of aerobatic glider competition now than I did before. So thank you very much for, for chatting with me. Oh, it's absolutely my pleasure. I love talking aviation to anybody to listen. <laughs> Lovely. Take care, Laura. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye now.
Laura Radigan spoke to me from Merritt Island, Florida. The next day, Laura sent me the following message, something she meant to say during the interview. I think it's very important to stress to everyone considering learning glider aerobatics the following. First, never attempt aerobatics without qualified instruction. Because of the low drag design of sailplanes, it's very easy to overspeed the glider and destroy the aircraft and place yourself in a dangerous position. Second, only perform aerobatics in a glider rated for aerobatics and always operate it within certified limitations. Third, whenever performing aerobatics, always wear a parachute and use a ground observer to keep your airspace clear. For this sport to be safe, it requires a high level of attention to detail, good physical conditioning, and qualified instruction. Very good advice, Laura. Safety first. That's it for episode number 10 of The Thermal. I will be back again in early April with another show that will include an interview with the man behind the Sunseeker, a solar-powered motor glider. Thanks for all the positive feedback. To keep this podcast going, I need to bump up the listenership, so please put out the word to your gliding friends and get them to subscribe via their favorite podcast provider. Finally, if you have any good interview ideas, please let me know. I can be reached at thethermalpodcast, all one word, at gmail.com. That's thethermalpodcast at gmail.com. Thanks for centering the Thermal Podcast. See you next time. I'm Harry Tenkate. Fly safe. <laughs>